Scott, will you add me as co-host? I can't, but uh, they're going to. Okay. It has to be the main account, unfortunately. Fantastic. But uh, that is in, in process. She said that you've been invited. Okay, there I am. All right, let's give it a few. Uh, yeah, guys, if and you quickly, could... I see Peter Brandt in the audience. We've invited you to speak. It should be in your DMs. Great. Um, yeah, I think let's just wait for, for more people to join. Let's just retweet it and get people here. Um, from tomorrow, Mario's back. So, because I think he's currently hosting the War Spaces, which I think obviously is, is obviously right now a lot on people's minds. Um, although I do think that the, the updates in the war are becoming a little bit, you know, I think we're going to have these kind of updates for months and months and months to come. So, um, so this is not going to be a short war. Let's put it that way. I mean, even though, Hamas said they were open to some kind of peace, you know, or, or some kind of talks or, or something like that. I don't think that this is going to be. They said a truce. A yeah. truce. They, they said they'd be open to a truce. Yeah, sure they would. Very clear they're not. Yeah, yeah, they're not. And I think that this war is going to go on for long, a long time. I think it could go on for, you know, as, as long as, you know, the Russia-Ukraine war has been going on because I don't think that this is something that's going to be resolved overnight. Um, and I think that the, the updates are going to start becoming, you know, more and more regular, so to speak, more and more normal, as opposed to as as, uh, as, sh- as shocking as they were in the last couple of days. Yeah, I think that that's human nature, for for better or for worse, is that you know people's attention spans are short at this point, and generally, unless you know there's something massive, a massive change or something breaking, it will just become sadly a part of the news cycle. Yeah. Yeah, I think I mean I think that that's pretty normal. You can see the markets are actually responding exactly like that. I saw futures, um, futures were up today. Nasdaq futures, um, in fact, all the futures were up today. Everything's up. Uh, the D- Dow is at thirty three seven sixty nine. QQQ is at three sixty. I mean, everything is absolutely mooning, and uh, a lot of that aligns obviously with sort of the premise. It's something that I actually talked about pretty. Uh, it, extensively this morning that it really looks like yields could be topping and, and bonds could be massively oversold here. I mean, we have a lot of precedent of uh, bonds being this oversold. Uh, you can look at TLT as a proxy for that, mm. obviously. But when we see bonds this massively oversold on so many uh, different timeframes, and then you see just how far they've descended below the 200 simple moving average, even just a massive mean reversion bounce here could be just huge for markets in general. Obviously, if yields start to drop significantly, bonds start to rage, you, you would somewhat expect that uh, that means the dollar is probably topping, the euro goes up, and stocks perform exceptionally well. And just, you know, that's what's happened in almost every situation. I mean, last time that we saw bonds this oversold in this situation, if we're trying to tie it to Bitcoin, is when Bitcoin effectively went straight from 30 to 60 something. Right. And that's, uh, doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen this time, but it just look, just does look like bonds are extremely overextended here. I mean, I'm sure Peter has thoughts on that. Is Peter up on stage? Let's get Peter up on stage. And Peter, welcome. Yeah, he's here. I want to talk yeah, to Peter hey. about that. And I, I want to talk to him about the cup and handle that's being printed on the S and P. Well, I think it's a cup and handle. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. Uh, strong seasonal. Huge shorts by uh, the hedge funds set up for a squeeze. Seasonality for stocks to rally this time of year. Bearish sentiment, uncertainty, which basically means a flight to quality, which basically means a demand for high-quality corporate uh, instruments, S&P. Yeah, I, I think we're set for a strong fourth-quarter rally in stocks. 
Peter, how did wars usually impact markets? And specifically when I'm talking about wars, let's like look at like Middle East type wars, you know, like you know, usually Israel's involved at some point. You know, we saw the oil price go slightly up. Just walk me through how wars impact markets and how you think this war is going to impact the market, you know, looking at things like oil and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, oil is a whole different story because you, you never know, you know, at what point you get a squeeze in supply or, you know, panics. But uh, stock markets, you know, I you can't say, you can't go back through history and make a case that wars are terribly negative for equity markets. Uh, I, I think there are other things that initially will bring in volatility, no doubt about that. Uh, makes Marx a little skitzy because people are on edge, willing to panic or FOMO at any point in time. But I just don't think one can put a stake in the ground and pound it in and say, I've got to be negative on U.S. equities or global equities because there happen to be there happens to be uh, a local or even a regional war at this point in time. So I think you just go on and you trade it based on other things. And um, personally, I just think war or no war, we are set for uh, two and a half months of strength in U.S. equities. So it's great. Yeah, sorry, just to jump in here. So I think it's a bit challenging to look at historical uh, periods, especially in this point in time, because equity markets have changed materially. A lot of equity markets today are driven by um, not only spot buying, but also hedging and futures and options exposure. So how does that release itself and how does that express itself? It's usually through volatility. So if volatility is low, you know, a lot of these funds are essentially programmed, whether it be hedge funds or vol control funds, to purchase equities. And it's sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and you've seen a lot of people talk about this on Twitter. So if war spikes the VIX, that means for a lot of these funds, just indiscriminate sell-offs without you know, actually discretionary traders hopping in to think about these things, um, which feeds into a lot of the technical analysis, Peters and others, uh, you know, do do so well. So, you know, I'm, I'm watching the VIX and the VIX right now is sitting at just below 17, which historically means less than or roughly a 1% move in the S&P daily. So, you know, if the VIX is still in control, there's still going to be that background bid for equities just through these mechanisms I mentioned earlier. Do you think it's surprising at all that even... I mean, we saw maybe a temporary dip, which I don't think you can attribute to the news. But do you think that it's surprising at all that we're seeing such minimal reaction to such large news generally in, in geopolitics? Is that a function of, you know, algorithmic trading and high frequency trading, as you talked about? Or is it just that we're at a point right now where markets are effectively shrugging off news in both directions? From my perspective, I, I think it's we're sort of shrugging off news, but you know, the, the GDP of those two countries and the overall equity exposure there is, uh, you know, fairly minimal. So in terms of direct earnings impact, um, you know, it's going to be very low. So you're basically pricing in the potential for a spike in oil, um, you know, a spike in broader conflict. But, I, you know, I think markets are saying we've seen this so many times before and we know how it turns out and the players involved are, um less relevant directly to a lot of the earnings that we see on the global stage that 
um, it, it, it's not going to have a broader impact. But, you know, if the war spills out into other countries being involved, if the U.S. is more meaningfully involved, I think that's when we see these things spike. But I've been personally a bit surprised how, how, uh, how little reaction there's been in markets. What about the fact that um, Saudi Arabia, you know, I, I read a, a, a quote from um, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and he says, the, kingdom, the kingdom's continuous, continuous stand by the Palestinian people to achieve their legitimate rights to a decent life, realize their hopes and aspirations, and achieve just, just and lasting peace. And that's, you know, after the U.S. pretty much pledged support for Israel and said, you know, we're going to do everything that it takes uh, to get to to def- to to help Israel defend its right to protect itself, does this does this cause like um, tensions between the Saudis and the Americans? Is this a proxy for the Saudis? Sorry, much what happened there. Um, is this a proxy for the Saudis versus the Americans here? How, how does this play out? Rand, I think I, I do want to go to the guest there, but. I think there's probably some nuance I've noticed in these statements where they're very clear to say they support the Palestinian people, but obviously you don't hear many of them saying they support Hamas. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure that they, yeah, they haven't come out. Uh, there's no, they haven't, there haven't been any supports with with Hamas. So it sounds to me like like what the markets what the markets doing here is the markets basically saying, look, this is a war that's just going to go on. It's going to go between Israel and Hamas. It's going to be. It's going to take a while for Israel to do what it needs to do, and for Hamas to retaliate in whichever way they're going to retaliate. And markets don't. As long as it stays like it is, markets just business as usual into Peter's into Peter's uh, cup and handle. Yeah. The other thing on that too, and as I, I just you know we've got the Fed coming out this week in light of kind of the global conflict. I just would not see the Fed raising rates this week. You know, even if that would have happened had the war not been going on there, I just think it's an additional thing. The Fed is going to just take a pass this week. We'll see pretty much meaningless comments come out, but we'll see no hike, rate hike this week precisely because of the war. So I think, the, uh, Peter, I think the Fed, I think the next FOMC meeting is only on the 1st of November. So they still have... I mean, we've got economic data coming out this week. We've got PPI, we've got CPI, we've got jobless numbers coming out this week. And I think we get the minutes from the previous meeting this week, but I don't think that the Fed actually meet for a right. interest rate this have, until the 1st I of November. Have, I do think we have seven Fed speakers this week, though, for, uh, <laughs> which, which is just absurd. But you're absolutely right. There's no uh, chance of a hike before November. And right now, what the market, what the probabilities are saying is that there's an 83.2% chance of no hike in, in November. Um, in fact, I, I've been watching this chart, and the probability of a, of a hike at any point is now the lowest that it's been in, in a long time. And that's since the beginning of this war. So since this war started, um, the market has basically said that it believes that because or as a consequence of this war, um, the chances of any further interest rate increases is now diminished. The highest chance is a 24% chance, and that's on the next meeting, which is the 13th of December, but that's the highest chance of another interest rate increase. Yeah, that's what I'm seeing as well. I didn't know if you were trying to address Peter on that. Mm. 
But maybe yep. maybe we should expand here. Obviously, Patrick, I, I know you've been tracking this rather closely. What are your thoughts uh, generally on how markets are reacting and what's likely in your mind to, to happen moving forward? Uh, I, I would tend to agree mostly with what um, with what Tom and and uh, Peter were saying. Um, I mean, I think it feels to me like most people are waiting to see whether this stays to be a conflict between Israel and Hamas or whether it expands to be a full regional war and especially uh, what the effect on on oil is. Uh, as far as uh, BTC specifically, I think one thing that's been pretty notable to me has been BTC strength compared to compared to the rest of the crypto market, which which um, I attribute that to the fact that, you know, when we're when everyone's mind is on war right now and, and on global conflict, a lot of the things that are built using smart contracts, uh, you know, NFTs, DeFi, all those things, they seem a lot less important. And then as insofar as people think that crypto has value or could have value uh, in this conflict, it's the fact that it allows you to permissionlessly store wealth and move money internationally. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. I also think that a lot of that can be attributed to just this part of the cycle, right? I mean, anyone who's ever looked at the four-year cycle of Bitcoin knows that at this point, you would expect that Bitcoin would be somewhat boring uh, and that altcoins would be suffering. (laughs) It's happened every single time. doesn't mean it'll be different uh, moving forward or or the same, but I don't think there's any surprise in anyone's mind right now that altcoins have slowly sort of bled while Bitcoin has been boring. I think the more uh, compelling part is that with all this volatility around and all these things happening in the world, Bitcoin has just been boring, right? That that can be pointed to, I think, is good news. Yeah. Uh, Scott, we see, I've got, we've got Burb here with us, uh, Adrian. Or Burb, Adrian. Uh, he wrote a paper, or it was a co-authored a paper called The Seasonality of Cryptocurrencies. And in that paper, he highlighted that there's going to be a massive pump of Bitcoin in October, November, and December. Um so I think while we have him here, and I know he's quite limited on time, I'd, I'd like to hear, you know, his, his, his theory goes into what we've been talking about now. Burb, welcome, my friend. Let's maybe talk about your paper and why you think it's going to happen. Hey, everybody. Can you hear me properly? We can. How are you, sir? I'm great. Awesome. Uh, good to have you, Legends. Thanks for, uh, for the invite. Oh, I, can see, I can see Peter Brand as well. Nice. You got some powerful spaces. Um, yeah, listen, I mean... There, there's been, of course, a lot of a lot, a lot of truth said already, and any 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 sort of like a forecast, any prediction is source of noise and uncertainty, right? So let's take everything with a grain of salt. Uh, however, I'm not going to rely much on the opinion, so I'm going to rely on the facts and something that already happened, right? Which basically generates 100% certainty anyway, right? So speaking of the four-year presidential cycle, I wrote a article with Jeff Hirsch, with the godfather of seasonal studies himself, where Jeff and his father, his late father, Yale Hirsch, basically put together the first ever framework for institutions to to communicate the facts and numbers, right, that are transparent and characteristic to specific seasons of the year. And you've got very interesting patterns throughout the year such as, for instance, you know, the Santa Claus rally, where you have typically a rally towards the towards the Christmas time, right? And kind of like a strong finish of the year uh, overall, or where you have a typical seasonal weakness throughout the quarter three when there is like less trading volume, right? When there is less 
less of the interest that transpires to less of this let's call it support cushion or demand on the market right as people take their attention out of the market and just place it somewhere else so there are a lot of seasonal patterns and just like we observe the temperatures or just like we decide whether we take a jacket you know for you know for what's coming ahead for the next day so for today we we do not make assumptions based on the future because that's what we don't know we take us we take a look at the temperature that's been transpiring you know over the past days hours years and decades right that's where we kind of like rely on the averages and the longer the data the data pool is right the more data in the, in the, in the pool the more the more relevant the averages are the simpler arithmetical averages as the as the actual estimate right so we can more accurately place our expectations at the averages in these terms so long story short just observing those presidential cycles you know we we are in the pre-election year uh, 2023, just like 2019. So there are a lot of similarities, 2015, 11, etc. Those are the most bullish record, uh, years on record, basically, right? And I just had a uh, had a little bit of a discussion earlier today with Jeff, how in 84 years, there was only one loser, basically, for the pre-elections, right? It was only down the year for Dow Jones in 84 years. That's a spectacular record, right? And there was about 20, uh, 20, 20 pre-election years total. Again, if I'm not mistaken, right, and 19 of them were bullish. But, yeah, but why do you think why, why do you think that pre-election years are so good? Shouldn't the year that's good be the actual election year? Because I think, I mean, like, do you think that next year in November when the people go to the polls, do you think they're going to remember that 2023 was such a great year? Or, like, is there any, can you, can you think of any reason why a pre-election year is the good year? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, Again, I mean, it's just doesn't matter what my opinion is. In fact, right, I can comment on it anyway. It doesn't matter what my opinion is because that's a fact. That's that's something that happens, you know, repeats over and over again over 84 years, right? So it's hard to ignore that. Still, uh, I think you know it's a conjunction of many different reasons. One being basically politicians wanting to inflate the markets before the election to fund the campaigns and kind of like be, you know, at a stage of where the voting comes up comes up so that people feel certain and confident confident that they are the obvious good choice, right? And they can only do it uh, if the economy performs well, if the markets perform well, when everybody is happy, right? Nobody gets reelected when everybody hates you, basically. So that is, that is, I think, the source thing, right? Then, of course, with the pop popularization of crypto, uh, well, crypto as well, but popularization of, of the computers, of, of the technical approach in the markets of quants, you know, I, I think that relying on this data may fulfill well may fulfill itself may come may chime into the self-fulfilling prophecy a little bit strengthening the effect of the seasonals because many people look at it right this is the same way so regardless of the very specific reasons it just happens this way it's just transparent and it just happens again and again and again and again so if you have 95 percent of the chances over 84 years right of being right then why wouldn't you take the opposite guess so that's the first thing right and this is a little bit of a seasonal kind of like approach of 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 intro is just to kind of like speak to the common sense, right? Because if some people, of course, still are so averse, are still so averse and so, I would say, prejudiced, you know, towards technical analysis and then the quantifying the records and not knowing, you know, rejecting the facts and, and kind of like focusing on their opinions, that they forget that's exactly what they are doing with the temperatures, right? And taking the jacket, like I said, if you, if somebody tells you that technical analysis doesn't work or is worthless, then it means they are going to basically take a jacket into the, you know, fucking desert 
in the middle mm-hmm. of, the, of the summer because why why the past would define the future right so they have no sentence so let's talk about let, let, let's talk specifically let's try and narrow it down to yeah. your thesis now specifically on bitcoin and crypto yeah correct so i send you by the way in the dm the chart that you may want to pin right it's just going to be i think a good good uh good point for conversation so angela if you could pin it please sorry uh, angela is driving in the back if you could if you could pin it please yeah. i'll send it to you yeah yeah um so four year presidential cycle is a is a fact right and the pre election years are the best it's a fact and then bitcoin is driven first of all by strengthening correlation over the years where uh, when the, where the actual correlation has strengthened when uh well what put together what put together uh with uh, with S&P 500 it's strengthened by almost 400% over the course of the past 8 years or so right so there are a lot of there are a lot of reasons to uh, kind of like acknowledge that Bitcoin is slowly becoming a little bit of a more volatile beta tech stock, Nasdaq, right? So there are a lot of similarities and dissimilarities and strengthening over the long term. So what Jeff what Jeff spotted, right, in our uh, PDF article, uh, the first ever of this kind, was that it fully subscribes, Bitcoin fully subscribes to what Nasdaq does in terms of their the best the best eight months Sorry, the, yeah, the best eight months of the seasonal kind of like a strategy when they, you know, Jeff actually times this with the stock traders on Monarch. Big shout out to them, by the way. Um, they they use the MACD buy signal. I think it triggered yesterday for the for the bull market. Uh, sorry, for the for the S and P five hundred as well. So it's a massive thing. So they they use the MACD for timing and the overall guideline for the seasonal studies for best eight months and the worst four months. So we've just skipped out of the worst four months. And heading October through May, until you get to see this pattern selling may go away, which transpires again pretty well. It extends for, it extends for Nasdaq a little bit longer, right? Typically into June transpires again. Quarter three is slow. It subscribes itself to the worst four months. So July, uh, July, August, September, kind of like you you have this, you know, June, July, September, uh, June, July, August, September, are are the four months that you do not really want to expose yourself much, right? And October is a typical turnaround month for for stocks, which has been the case many many times in the past. Um, so again, if the pattern repeats itself again and again and again and over again, then perhaps there is something to it, right? Regardless of the reasons behind it. So the best eight months have started basically, right? There still might be some bottoming process, of course. You know, we don't know. There's such a such a terrible thing going on with uh, with the you know Middle East conflict right now within Gaza my, my heart goes out to everybody up there who I hope you guys are staying safe um, but I think what you said I think what saying yeah. I think what you're saying I think what you're saying is that um, uh, I think what you're saying is that seasonally the Nasdaq performs very very well in the last in the in the last four months of the year specifically you're saying that Bitcoin has become more of a proxy risk asset in the eyes of the institutions, and that um, that as a result of that you're expecting Bitcoin to actually perform like a risk asset, which means that you're expecting a a push in the last four months, right? Is that is that well summarized? Yeah, you can put it in this way, right? So October, on average, over the last 13 years for Bitcoin, it averages out 20% gain, right, as opposed to 6.5% loss on average for September, the worst month of the year. So from the worst one of the so, year, 
you get you get October, which is which averages twenty percent gain on average. November, which averages forty percent on average gain, right? Uh, again, mm -hmm. and the the December, which comes up with the Santa Claus rally and pretty much giving you know sealing the decent close towards the end of the year. That is a pre-election year, otherwise bullish. So all that transpires to an average gain of forty or fifty percent for quarter four as a fall, right? So it means that if you keep buying at the beginning of quarter four and selling at the end of a year, year in, year out over the last 13 years, you are a 50% gain on average year by year. That's a pretty powerful record, right? So one thing is Bitcoin is, again, more be, more bit of volatile, you know, tech stock brother for of NASDAQ. And it's subscribing itself to the seasonal pattern of best eight months and worst four months, right? Huge shout out to Jeff again. Uh, it also, again, transpires very powerful records on its own characteristic to Bitcoin, right? But the strongest month of the year, November, 40% gain. October is a decent warm-up that typically comes up together, uh, extends into November, and then kind of like seals the, the whole thing bullish in, in December. That's what typically happens, right? The best trading day of the year is uh, is 28th of October in terms of the cumulative average performance. Again, it's everything is, is in a tweet that I sent you over. Yeah. Free to pin it. Perfect. Yeah, the odds are pretty bullish. The, the context is bullish. Some people say this is uh, maybe the final comment uh, before I rumble myself to death. Uh, uh, you say you sent me the tweet. Where, where have you sent the tweet? Yeah. Uh, DM. What's up? Oh, okay. Uh, I didn't get it on the WhatsApp. So let me just put a chair. Send, okay, send here. I think I think that. Okay, I, I've got it. Yeah. I've got a chair. Uh, Andy, Andy, I see you. Uh, Andy, I see you with us. I'm keen to hear your thoughts about what Burb's saying in terms of last quarter of the year. Keen to understand how you see the last quarter panning out, panning out for markets. Uh, good to be here, everyone. Thanks for having me. You know, I have been at this for a very long time, and, and I understand the validity of technical analysis. And as much as I would like to brush some of it away to technical analysis being somewhat flawed in markets that are controlled and rigged, I still come back to the fact that over time, it certainly has proven to be more than accurate. Um, but I look at things in a very different way because, and maybe I'm an outlier here, but I look at things in a way that would say, well, yes, that's true in a 40-year bull market in bonds, in equities, in real estate. But I look at things differently right now because this isn't what always was. I mean, we can talk about the fact that well, we've come the closest to defaulting on our debt in decades. We, we've seen losses on, on treasury bonds um, with maturities of 10 years or more at almost 50%. We'll go down as maybe the biggest bond debacle ever since 2020. We see the Speaker of the House removed for the first time ever. Of course, we have war in, in Israel, war in the Ukraine. We have the mortgage rates hitting their highest level in 23 years. We have OPEC raising uh, again or decreasing oil production, voluntary production cuts. At the same time, oil has reached its highest price in over a year to $95 a barrel plus. And now you have war breaking out in the Middle East. And this is on top of record. Now, these are all records. $17.1 trillion in household debt. Record, 12 trillion in mortgages as rates explode. Record, 1.6 trillion in auto loans. Record, 
1.6 trillion in the largest asset of the United States student loans. And yeah, you heard me right. Their balance sheet just came out. 155 trillion in debt when you add Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and government military pensions to a $33 trillion debt. And in the past, in case no one's noticed, in the past 18 days, we've added $444 billion to the debt. In 18 days, it took us till 1975 to accumulate our first $500 billion. And we've added almost that much in two weeks. $1 trillion. Why do you think, Andy, why do you think that's happened like that in the last, is that, is that now the rate of spend or the rate of increase in debt? Is, we just, is that now the new normalized rate or has, have the last few days and weeks been an extraordinary spend period? Well, you go back to just since when they raised the debt ceiling, we're up almost $2 trillion in debt. Just since they raised the debt ceiling, it took us over 210 years to do to, to accumulate the first $1.5 trillion. We did that in eight weeks. And so, you know, you're talking, you're talking a system that has gone mad in terms of its, its, um, its fiscal sanity. And we are spending money that we don't have. And we are behaving like we um, like everything is normal and everything is great, but it really isn't great. And this is why I think relying upon metrics that, yes, they've worked very, very well in, in, in orderly markets. And they've, they've shown a great deal of accuracy when you talk about markets that are behaving rationally. But these are, these are not rational times whatsoever. And at the same time, when you look at what the central banks are doing, um, not only are they dumping bonds, China, Japan, Saudi Arabia, but they purchased 77 tons of gold in August, marking a 38% increase from July. This is going on and on and on for the past 18 months. The most well-informed traders on the planet, the central banks, have been buying more gold than at any time in history. So I don't think these are normal times. And then you have this rallying cry uh, of all of these countries pushing back against the Western hegemony um, and, the, and, and the, the coercion that has, you know, strung up the bricks. So, look, there's so much upheaval going on right now. But I think we haven't even talked about the elephant in the room, and that is the banking sector. You have a banking sector that is very, very, very close to imploding. And I would bet, I would bet dollars to donuts that maybe 25% or more of the people on this Twitter space don't even know that it is law that, it, that if a bank goes upside down, it needs to be bailed in, not bailed out. That what happened with Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank was actually a violation of the Dodd-Frank law. That this is why the what do you mean? What do you mean a, a bank needs to be bailed in and not bailed out? Right. So when the Dodd Frank law was passed after the great financial crisis of two thousand and eight, a law was put into place that said if a bank ever goes upside down again, it will not be the taxpayer's responsibility to bail out the banks. Meaning, just like when we bailed out AIG or when we bailed out all of the banks that that needed trillions of dollars of, of, of liquidity to bail out their, their foolish bets, they said that's illegal. Now, the depositors in the banks are unsecured general creditors, period. Meaning, anything over the bullshit FDIC lie 
of uh, of two hundred fifty thousand dollars. And why do I say it's a lie? Because they have one hundred and twenty eight billion in assets backing 18 trillion in deposits. And anything over that amount will be bailed in to the banks to become uh, you are to to bail in the bank. In other words, you are a creditor of the bank and you are unsecured. And that's why there was such outrage by the the Republican senator from Oklahoma when he was questioning Janet Yellen after Silicon Bank was bailed out. He said, Madam Secretary, you just bailed out Silicon Valley Bank. And I thought that was made illegal with the Dodd-Frank Act. She says, yes, it was. But we felt that it was too systemic of a risk to not bail them out. But it won't be at the taxpayers' uh, expense. FDIC will cover this. Okay, right, sure. So no inflation on this. So, But so he says, well, does that mean if a bank fails in Oklahoma, my constituents will be made whole? She says, absolutely not. It will require a majority, uber majority, as she called it, decision from the FOMC, which is the Federal Reserve, myself, the FDIC, and the President of the United States to deem if those banks are worthy to be bailed out or not, if it's too systemic. In other words, she lit the fuse. She said, they will be bailed in. And no one understands this. Wait until you see a bank fail. And you don't think that Moody's and S&P downgraded these banks just for the hell of it? You are going to see, you know, you have 1.5, 150 billion, rather, excuse me, 150 billion plus in short-term loans that were, were made by the FDIC, by the, excuse me, by the Fed in um, these emergency l- lending programs. And, and they all are due to sunset in the next six months. You have ba- uh, balance sheets on these banks that are completely upside down. And it doesn't matter what the Fed does about raising rates or not, unless they want to get into yield curve control, because as these banks continue to meet redemption requests, they are forced to sell their bonds, their 10-year treasuries, which are underwater, which pushes rates up even further, which kills the banks more and more and more. And wait until this next bank is, is fails and is bailed in. And no one understands what that means. That means you lose everything over 250000 gone, goodbye. I don't care if it's a business account with $5 million in operating capital or, or your life savings. Gone. Goodbye. And when you but talk... Didn't... I mean... The, hang on. May, may I say real quick? That, just one second. The, the response that we got last time from Yellen when the bank started to collapse was effectively all depositors will be... Will be I don't want to say insured, but you know, I think you know what I'm oh, saying. You have, like you she 18, said, oh. But that's illegal. And you have $18 trillion in deposits. Right now... There is over uh, $7 trillion in uninsured deposits, $7 trillion in uninsured deposits. Just the top four commercial banks have over $4 trillion in uninsured deposits. Does that mean we're going to print $7 trillion? I mean, welcome to Zimbabwe. At what point, so what, at what point does this become so, uh, unfixable? So what – So. I mean, what do you see? What do you see happening in the next in the next quarter, so to speak? Um, I see chaos, and I hate to say it. And I am not saying this to talk my book. I am not saying this. I have three kids. My youngest is sixteen. I want this country's been wonderful to me, but I will simply tell you that when the next bank fails, and there will be banks that fail, and it is bailed in, you are going to see chaos. You are going to see realization that people will flock to Bitcoin. People will flock to gold and silver. Where else do you put your money at a period of time when it's not even safe to keep it in the bank anymore? And there are a lot of banks that are hanging on by a thread. 
and have borrowed as much as 100 or percent or more of their equity from the Fed in a short-term lending program just to stay solvent for a short period of time. You see one bank fail, one big regional bank fail, and it is bailed in. Watch what happens when everybody runs to the bank to rip their money out. And that in and of itself creates a, a cascade of, of, of rising interest rates because these banks are loaded with 10-year treasuries that are underwater and they have to sell them, which then pushes the, the yield up higher and drops the bond price further. And then it creates more problems for all the other banks. And, and it feeds upon itself as a vicious doom loop. And it's just very interesting to note that the number two economic advisor to the United States government, Lael Brainerd, is a modern monetary theorist who wants to call all the banks and issue money directly from the Federal Reserve. What did the Bank of International Settlements say recently? Every single country must have an operational CBDC by 2025. She ran point with MIT while she was at the, at the Fed before she became the, the economic advisory to the U.S. government. She also ran point for FedNow, which just came out. She is a modern monetary theorist. This is exactly what she wants. And why is this happening? Let me ask you a question. Why the hell has the Federal Reserve allowed the reverse overnight reverse repo market for all these months to continue to take money market funds in, where you're guaranteeing 5.3% with overnight or daily liquidity in a money market account when the regional banks can't touch that? Why would anyone stay in a regional bank where the best you can do is a one-year CD at under 5%? You have to, you're locked in for a year in, in a system that we are told by Janet will not be bailed out unless under extraordinary circumstances. And these banks are over-leveraged and undercapitalized, and the next one that fails and gets bailed in, watch what happens. It will be chaos because nobody knows about it. And it's law. Okay, so so do you think do you think that what we, we get now is we get in the next couple of months? First of all, do you expect any more interest rate increases? Or do you think Powell is well aware of what you're telling me? I think Powell is trapped. I mean, look, he says his his hero was uh, Paul Volcker, who raised interest rates to eighteen and three quarters percent. I don't know. Does he want what does he want his legacy to be? Does he have the courage to do what what should have been done a long time ago, and that is to raise rates above the level of inflation. And the level of inflation that we are told is real is fake, as is the information on, on unemployment. Anything that comes out of the Bureau of Labor Statistics, you should take the L out of the equation. And look at what John Williams of Shadow Stats tells us. And we've got inflation at 11 or 12% based upon the metrics that they used to be before they changed it to meet their illusionary inflationary agenda. It doesn't matter if you raise it by a quarter or a half percent. There are forces in play right now that will continue to raise interest rates unless the Fed embarks upon yield curve control. And then we head down the road of, you know, why my republic? Because who the hell is going to buy our treasuries at this rate? Who wants to buy our paper? And, you know, when you see, it's interesting that when you see the major players in, in the um, central bank arena selling treasuries. And we're supposed to believe that one of the top buyers of U.S. treasuries right now is the Cayman Islands. Are we supposed to believe that? Or is it a shell corporation that's, you know, produced by the Fed, hiding there, buying up all the treasuries? But who wants to buy these treasuries that are getting slaughtered? At the same time, you see a massive push to de-dollarize and to sell treasuries and dollars across the globe. It is impending. I think, 
interest rates going much. Yeah, Rick Santelli out there saying his charts say rates can go to 14.5%. It's not me. This is just, I don't think it has anything to do with the Fed. It's the market. I think we, yeah, I think we're delving into a bit of a bit of conspiracy theory and, and, and lunacy here, right? All treasuries are are especially on the short end liquid dollars, and no matter what way you slice it, dollars are the denominator for every asset in the world. They are the currency of the realm. They are eighty eight percent of global foreign transactions. They are fifty percent of global invoices. They are fifty percent of SWIFT payments. They are twenty five percent of underlying global GDP. Um, you know, they are 50% of uh, global cross-border loans. So until you find a solution to pay for things other than uh, in assets other than dollars, we are going to have to live with treasuries being whatever the U.S. government says they are. Whether that's right or not, I, I, I don't think it is, but it doesn't really matter, right? Bitcoin is not that solution just because bearer assets, you know, the ability to Transacting them is is really challenging. That's why we went off the gold standard. So there could be, um, you know, some fluctuation, and we can smooth business cycles. But you know, maybe a CBDC facilitates that. I don't know. But for the next, call it five years, right? The U.S. government has the ability to monetize any debt because guess what? They print dollars. They print the denominator. So people aren't going to be running to the banks when the U.S. government could paper over any crisis that happens. We have that ability. It's just the law of the land. Or is it conspiracy theory and lunacy, or does that, what you just said, sound ridiculous if you're the rest of the world? That's right. We'll just paper it over. We'll just modern monetary theory it away. Zimbabwe and Weimar Republic prove that to be untrue. And at some point, the rest of the world wakes up to this. Zimbabwe and Weimar Republics didn't control 25% of the world GDP, had the most successful corporations, have the best growth rate in the world. They didn't have the most, uh, you know, productive populations. Those are, those are bad analogies, well, right? We and can, the US, we can, we US can agree to disagree, but I think your recency bias is missing a, a growing um, trend. I think, look, I, I, I want to just take opinion. So Tom, I, I hear you that I agree that Zimbabwe wasn't the, the, the highest manufacturing nation, but remember Zimbabwe is very um, resource rich, and it could be a very wealthy country if it if it if it if it was run correctly. So it's not maybe not as as much of a production nation as the United States, but it's certainly not a nation that, that didn't have anything going for it. I think the other thing which I which I where, where I do want to agree with Andy is, is that when you when you look at the US, you can see clearly that the US is on the decline at the moment. Now it might be still the what do they say the cleanest shirt in the in the dirty laundry, but I mean, you you can see that that as a trend, it's very, very, very much in the decline, no? I believe so. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah, I, I think we're on a slow path to de-dollarization. My point is that it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a five, 10-year period. And I totally agree. Bitcoin, gold are absolutely fantastic ways to play that and to to, to feed into that. My contention is, though, that's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen in one fell swoop. It's going to be a very slow and gradual process. But that's why you want exposure to these assets. Okay. I just push back against it to be an instantaneous sort of flip the switch moment, which, you know, Bology sort of alluded but, to. And but I, I, never back said that. That same I never said it was flip the switch. I never said that. You said it's conspiracy theory and lunacy. It's a conspiracy in theory and lunacy that the Bank of International Settlements reclassified gold as the world's only other tier one reserve asset in 2019 and as a conspiracy theory and lunacy 
that the central banks have bought more gold over the last 18 months than ever, ever, ever before in coordination with selling their treasuries. You're right. If they did it too fast, they'd cut off their nose to spite their face. Is a conspiracy theory or lunacy that all of the exchanges across the globe are being bled dry of all of their commodities, not just gold and silver, zinc, uh, aluminum, all of the rare earth metals? Is it really or is it a growing trend? It's called logarithmic decay. Little by little by little by little by little, and then bang, all at once. When is the bang? Don't know. I don't know. But I will simply tell you to, re- to think that it is normal and okay for, for a country just to paper over their problems after printing $444 billion in 18 days, after increasing our debt by over $2 trillion in just a few months, we're on pace right now just in what they're doing to increase our debt this year by $11 trillion if they continue to print this way. So at some point, at some point, this recency bias will be exposed by the rest of the world who's just sick and tired of, of a country that has, has ruled the roost for a very long time that is, is just printing money like like there's no consequences. So I, but yeah, but, 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 but I mean, again, like uh, I think we've had this discussion many times on this spaces and, and, and other similar spaces. There's nowhere else to go. I mean, if you, if you, if you put your, if you don't want your money to be in us dollars, where else do you put your money other than, I mean, you can say gold or Bitcoin, but where else do you put your money? Well, that's the, that's the, that's the big problem, isn't it? And, and why do you think these banks are selling treasuries and buying gold? I mean, why do you think that, I don't know. Where do you put it? Why do you think there's a growing, yeah, so a growing chorus to push back against the dollar and to settle all of these trades outside the dollar in, in other local currencies? Well, you know, everyone was upset the BRICS didn't come back with their gold currency here in August. But what did they say? They all agreed to de-dollarize and trade energy in local currencies and come back to the table next year with a plan for a local settlement currency. I'm not saying the dollar is going to go away tomorrow. But if you are not a contrarian, as my friend Rick Rule often says, I truly believe you will become a victim. And I think that is a, a reality, whether it happens in six years or six months or 60 days. I don't know. But, but I do think that there are consequences for, for what we are doing. And I also find it ironic. One last point. You know, I ask people, well, what makes the dollar the world reserve currency? Okay, number one, it's it's the protection of the Saudi kingdom. Well, that's no longer in play because, well, they signed an agreement with Russia. They joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. They joined the BRICS, and we told them that we're we're going green. We signed an executive order. Well, how about the, the full faith and credit of the U.S.? Well, we're insolvent. We're a banana republic of 130% debt to GDP. And by the way, Every single time in history, a country has gone over 130%, they have defaulted, period. End of story. Every single time in history. And so we're broken. We're insolvent. Our largest asset is student debt. And how about the faith of this country? Do you really think the world looks at us the same way they did on on liberty, on justice, on lawlessness, all of the things that are corroding? And so you take, remove the petrodollar, remove the fact that we are... um, we're broke, we're insolvent. And how about the fact that people look at us as what the hell is happening in this country? This ain't the U.S. that I remember. So you, you, you throw all that away. And do you know that the number one economic advisor to this country, Jared Bernstein, his main thesis is losing the dollar's world reserve status? So when you add the number one and two economic advisors to, 
to the equation. One wants to get rid of the world reserve status, says it's a privilege we can no longer maintain. And I don't know about you, but if I wanted to lose the world reserve status, I'd weaponize a dollar and tell Saudi Arabia we're going green and sign an executive order. And how about what's happening inside the country? I create divisiveness. There's no unity. Every time we've had our backs to the wall, we were unified. We have no unity anymore. You can't even go to Thanksgiving dinner and tell your family who you voted for because it creates a fight. So when you talk about this country and being what we once were, I can assure you that much of the world doesn't think we are what we once were. And there will come that all at once moment. Don't know when it is. But if you don't look at things in a realistic viewpoint and think everything will be okay, we can just print and continue to coerce and bully the world. Well, I got a, a bridge to sell you. That's just my personal opinion. And I, I agree. I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I agree with you wholeheartedly that you can't do it. And I, and I, I often use the analogy that if uh, the U.S. was a country and the country went to, you know, if the U.S. was a company and the company went to the SEC and said, look, we've got $33 trillion in debt. Our annual uh, uh, debt payments at, the, at, this, at these interest rates are $1 trillion a year. I mean, the SEC would probably, you know, open a case against all the executives and the DOJ would probably open a criminal case for negligence or whatever the, the charge is. But unfortunately, you know, right now, that's, they have the network effect of being the global reserve currency and there's nowhere else to go. I mean, you can't put your money into the Chinese yuan and you can't put your, your money into the renminbi and, and all of those. So, I mean, I, I guess for now, that's what it is. Now, how long so, will this last? That I have no idea. Tom, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm in violent agreement with Andy on a lot of his points, right? I don't think any of us are comfortable with the situation, and there definitely will be a day when the other shoe drops. But that day, I don't think, is coming anytime soon just because of the momentum that we have in the global system. And that is driven by U.S. being price, U.S. dollars uh, you know, being the denominator for all global debt. If you're issuing debt in another country, you're not issuing it in Argentinian pesos or whatever. You're issuing it backed by U.S. dollars and U.S. debt. Uh, and that's that's just the law of the land, right, for a lot of these countries, and that's all over the world. Unraveling all of that is an enormous headache. And then you have oil that's priced in dollars. It, you know, it could BRICS price oil in another currency potentially, right? But what would they back that currency with? They'd have to back it by dollars. There literally is not enough Chinese renminbi or euros to facilitate backing a currency um, by by anything else but the dollar. So you potentially could do it with a basket of hard currencies that comes with its own problems. So mm. I think we're getting there, but I, yeah, I just I don't think it's anytime soon. I agree, Peter. Uh, I see you had your hand up. Yeah, just a couple odd things to say, and I agree a lot uh, with what Andy is saying. And somebody who has really written extensively about the precarious situation we find the world in is Ray Dalio. And I recommend anybody go to his LinkedIn page and uh, read his books. I, I think he has a great philosophical handle on some of these big themes that are going on. I just want to make one point. Uh, stocks are the ultimate short dollar play. When you buy stocks, you go short dollars. And, you know, I would agree with Andy that the U.S. dollar is a precarious asset. But uh, the, the best short dollar position I can think of currently is being long stocks. You buy stocks, you short dollars. That's the only thing I have to, to add. The are, you, are, you saying, are you saying? Are you saying buying stocks, shorting dollars because stocks are an inverse play? As the dollar depreciates, the 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 the, the nominal value of stocks goes up. 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, you think about it, you got to hold your asset someplace. If you're holding your asset in dollars, that's not a good place to hold it. Uh, when you buy stocks, you're transferring your ownership position from something make-believe, that is fiat currencies issued by the U.S. government, to something that has some realistic value of, of earning uh, money and paying dividends over time. So, I mean, you look back through history, being long quality equities, S&Ps, SPY, uh, you know, in a multi-decade perspective, it's the best short dollar play I can think of. So let me go through the panel here, and I just want to get get a, a sentiment here. Question is one we've asked before. If you had to put your money into one asset for the next five years, you can't touch it for five years. You can only put your money into one asset for the next five years. What would the asset be? Um, maybe, Peter, maybe this is a good one to start with you. Five years, no withdrawing, no swapping from place to place. You get all your you get your full investment back in five years plus whatever it's returned. What what is what would you put your money in for the next five years? Uh, not government debt. I'd put probably sixty percent into quality equity. Is probably it's got to be one asset. Uh, one asset, hundred percent stocks. Stocks. Okay, that's a good one, Patrick. Energy stocks. Energy stocks. Tell me why you'd say energy stocks specifically. Well, I think if you look at historically in periods of high inflation and, um, you know, as well as global turmoil, energy stocks have tended to tended to hold up well. Okay, so Patrick's energy stocks. Uh, Yago, I mean, I take it you're going to say Bitcoin, but let's see. Yago, what are you, what are you saying? Mean, one no asset secret. It's no secret that I've hold, been holding Bitcoin for 11 years at this point, maybe more actually, you know. Uh, and my reasoning is very simple. It is the only asset which protects you not just against inflation, but against any of the many ills and potential systemic collapses that have been discussed during this and the other calls that you have. It's the only asset which truly has no counterparty and which you can actually own yourself. All of the other assets you have a middleman, which relies on the entire system working for it to be, you know, for you to be the beneficial, but not the actual owner. And not only that, it benefits from the fact that it has the best sharp ratio adjusted returns throughout this period, continues to be the best performing asset this year. And I think we are in a world which is becoming increasingly volatile. The number of times we see something shocking, which we said would never happen, has, uh, you know, decreased from once every few years to once every year to now once every few months. And there's a real risk that we don't know what the next thing that will collapse is. And so if you want to be able to own something in a world which becomes increasingly digital and which you can truly own, there is only one asset, and that is Bitcoin. All right, so you go, you put your money in Bitcoin. No surprise there, Tom. Where would you put your money? Five years, all your money into one asset. Ethereum. Ethereum, it's global, fantastic. Global bet on the entire uh, financial system digitizing. So, pretty straightforward from from my perspective. All right, Dave Tawil. I don't know if he's with us. Dave, are you with us? I am with right, you. Uh, all right. Yeah, I'm going to go GBTC. GBTC because you want to get the because by that time you believe there's going to be an ETF and you're going to make the premium and you're going to get the Bitcoin. You got it. 
Fantastic. Andy, where would you put your money? This is one that I'm really interested in. Well, and a lot of people would say put your money into silver because it offers such great potential. First of all, to to the gentleman who just spoke, I would agree about Bitcoin having no counterparty risk, but the same is true about gold and silver. They are two of the only assets that, that do not have counterparty risk. They are simultaneously no one's uh, liability. And uh, so fits in this. And I, you know, I've always felt that that cryptocurrencies and precious metals are cut from the same cloth and there should, it should not be a one or the other that it should be both. I believe that uh, vehemently. However, what I would say is, since the end of World War II, there's been one tier one asset by central bank measurements, and that's been U.S. dollars and U.S. treasuries. That has been the exorbitant privilege that we have got since the end of World War II. Um, the Bank of International Settlements, which is the central banker's central bank, it's, it's the most sophisticated bank on the planet, said, oh, by the way, gold is now a tier one asset, the only other one. And what is the asset that all the central banks own and are buying? Gold. If I had one trade and only one trade to make, to me, it's not about return on your money as much as it is return of your money in these very, very volatile and possibly upheaving times. So for me, if I'm looking to protect and and keep without risk, it's gold. I don't know why I'm, am I the only one getting that noise? Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry I was getting that noise. All right, so, so you've gone you've gone with gold. I think we've been through all the speakers. Yeah, we have been through all the speakers. Guys, I think on that note, um, I think we'll call it a day for today. Um, not much else happening on the crypto markets. It's been a pretty bland day. Bitcoin's the only one that's running. The alts are pretty flat. Uh, I think we'll meet back here again tomorrow. If you haven't already followed the Crypto Town Hall we're going to be hosting most of the shows now from Crypto Town Hall. If you want to get the notification, obviously just follow this Twitter account. It's the big uh, red logo, which is hosting this one. Um, just follow it because that's where we're going to be coming. I think Mario will be joining us again tomorrow uh, when the war spaces die down and he can get back into the normal programming. On that note, I'll see you guys again tomorrow. Thank you, guys.